electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans on this very busy Friday. For starters, we have the banks, of course. J.P. Morgan holding its gain, but PNC has turned negative. Along with broader markets, we're right near session lows. More on that in a moment. Also, this data divergence. We've got deflation. We've got inflation. We've got Fed speak going both ways, retail sales, industrial production. And after all of that, we've got higher odds of a rate hike next month. We'll tell you why. And the housing market at a tipping point. We've got the rate where home buyers are drawing the line, plus a contrarian call in the travel space. It's a bearish note on a very big name that's seen 30% gains this year. Back to the markets, though. The Nasdaq underperforming amidst the sell-off as those rate hike expectations shot up this morning. It's down 1%. And it's the only major average now on pace to close lower for the week. Now to the banks and those big bank earnings, as we mentioned, let's dig in a little bit, shall we? The results were largely better than feared, but the regional bank ETF, the KRE, has turned lower today. Let's start with the big guys. J.P. Morgan, way better than expected. It had deposit growth, higher net interest income, and tight expense control, especially in its guidance. That has investors feeling good. Citi also posting a strong beat. Its shares are up almost 4% today, though it did keep its 2023 revenue guidance unchanged at $78, $79 billion. Over at Wells Fargo, they noted a very gradual weakening in charge-offs and set aside $650 million nearly for potential losses across credit card, personal, and auto loans. That stock down about half a percent. And Finally, and perhaps most importantly, this earnings season, PNC. Its loan loss provisions actually dropped by almost $200 million from last quarter. Initially, that boosted shares, but they've since turned lower, as investors now say that contributed to a low-quality earnings beat, and those provisions maybe should be going up if we're heading into a downturn. So J.P. Morgan, far and away the best performer on the S&P today. It's up about 8%, 7% as it pairs its gains, while PNC shares are now trading back to levels we haven't seen since November of 2020. So are the bank problems really behind us now or not? Let's ask David Conrad. He's Large Cap's bank analyst at KBW, a Stiefel company, along with our very own Dom Chu, who joins me here on set, and CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Sun. Welcome, everybody, and it's great to see you. David, I'll start with you. And uh, regional banks, I think people feel a lot better if we – look, if the carry was up 5% today, I think we could all say this issue is more firmly behind us, but it's not. Yeah, I mean, I think PNC is probably somewhat of a, a decent read through uh, going into next week on the fundamentals, perhaps. You know, they had pretty elevated deposit costs and um, non interest bearing deposits were down, you know, mid single digits quarter over quarter. You know, I think the issue also with PNC, though, is one of the more expensive stocks, you know, heading into the into the print. And so it was trading at a, you know, north of a 20 percent premium to peers, largely because it's a high quality, you know, strong management team. So they were more exposed to kind of a, a guide that missed expectations and brought the stock down. Hugh, what would you add to that? Hey, Kelly, great to be with you. So I, I would look at it through the lens of net interest income. So if you look at J.P. Morgan, theirs was up uh, by nearly 50%. It was a huge uh, beat by over a billion dollars. Uh, and they actually got it to uh, a $7 billion in excess of what they had said that net interest income would be in this year, uh, 2023, they're saying it's going to be 81 billion versus 74 billion 
Now, look at PNC. PNC actually had a 3% decrease in net interest income because, as David mentioned, uh, you know, their funding costs are higher. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean in plain English? It means that they actually have to pay people higher interest rates to convince them to keep their money at PNC. And I think that's the issue that they're going to face and a lot of their other regionals are facing is that they don't have uh, the kind of franchise that keeps these kind of sticky deposits at such a low cost as J.P. Morgan does, which, as we know, is the beneficiary of that uh, deposit flight. And, Dom, so we have kind of two problems coming to a head today. We have this issue we're talking about with banks specifically, while at the same time the Fed speak is, you know, Christopher Waller is pretty hawkish. And so we've got kind of this double whammy for those who are hoping for maybe a little bit smoother sailing today. And and it's not just that. I mean, the the points being brought up here uh, are, are, are very much on point with regard to the regional bank versus big bank dynamic. And the reason why we're looking so closely at PNC today is not necessarily because it's so indicative of regional banking in general, but it becomes like the appetizer, right, to what's going to happen next week. And for PNC specifically, we're talking about a super regional bank that, yes, has some of those funding costs and will have to compete with other banks to get customer deposits in, increasing funding costs, lowering net interest income. But it's also about whether or not that deposit flow is steady. And what we did see from PNC is that their deposits did actually grow ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a huge growth in deposits whatsoever. But what it shows is, is that for a bank of, say, a PNC size or a U.S. bank's size or one of these other reach super regionals like Truist or, 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 you know, regions, maybe those deposits are not as flighty as they are at, say, a PacWest, a Western Alliance, a First Republic or otherwise. And that's the reason why people are looking at this, not because it's indicative of those pro- problem banks, mm-hmm. but because it is a way for you to benchmark what other regional banks will be like in this coming week. Yeah, and, and David, to, to the point Dom's making, these are some of the stronger super regional banks, right? These, I don't think it's going to get better as we get into the smaller you know, areas, maybe more specialized. It's a different line, a different line of business. Tell me as we spin this into <clears throat> next week what your big takeaways are, what you think are now going to be the pressure points for the market. Well, again, it's all going to be about deposits. And if you look at PNC, you know, their deposit costs in, increased about 70% relative to the Fed funds increase. You know, JP Morgan only increased deposit costs 55% of what the Fed of the Fed funds did in the quarter. And so when you start to get to, you know, that 70% range, um, you know, to Hugh's point, it gets tough to really grow the NII. And so we're expecting you know, cumulative betas to be, you know, the mid 40% range by the time we end the year. And so that means really escalating deposit costs over the next two to three quarters. Yeah. And again, uh, Hugh, that's why people are wondering about there's there's kind of the near term catalyst issue with deposit flight. And then there's the longer term concerns about profitability. Uh, to that point, by the way, I mean, we should say Wells City, they managed to put up some decent numbers this quarter, Hugh. But I guess more of it becomes about what's uh, lurking. Even Jamie Dimon's own comments where he's quite concerned about a recession. It's hard to feel great about the banks now in that kind of environment. Yeah, it's not, you know, so in some sense, this is a sweet spot for banks, particularly like J.P. Morgan, because credit costs aren't high yet. They're not elevated. They're still super low. And yet they're, they're, they're reaping the benefits of the fact that, you know, big picture, the Fed has increased interest rates, its benchmark rate by 500 basis points, more or less, in the past year. So that's a very compelling kind of combination. But then you take a step back and say, do I want to own banks ahead of a possible recession? How deep is that recession? How bad could it get? So that, that's certainly the case here, and, and it would give a lot of investors pause. Yeah, Dom, go ahead. I was going to say, you brought up an excellent point, Kelly, about bringing kind of the Fed dynamic into this, right? Because if you have those hawkish comments, you would expect interest rate to rise. 
and, and in that way, you're battling against an economic narrative where if things really go bad, people will end up flying towards the safety of treasuries, which then pushes yields lower. Right. And if you push yields lower, you've in essence, in some small way, helped to solve the regional banking yes. liability mismatch mm -hmm. crisis, right? Because if you're giving more value to the treasury holdings that these guys have, then they're able to then better cover their liabilities down the line. So there's a very weird dynamic. I mean, Hugh talks about a sweet spot, but this is also very much a one where, where, where we're talking about unprecedented times because of an unwind of central bank policy that we've never, ever seen happen before. Right. And I guess to make the point that you're making, the Waller comments today just came at a vulnerable time. You know, when I think it was PNC when they're talking about, hey, you know, we did a little bit better because these Treasury prices improved in the last you know month or two. And then all of a sudden, even this morning, we see yields jumping again. Investors are like, all right, well, we kind of know the mark to mark. <laughs> we know the mark to market implications of that. Dom, final comment as we spin into next week, same uh, for you. What, uh, what do we watch for now? It, it is really about, for me, I mean, because I'm, I'm looking so closely at the regional banks, it is very much about the deposits. Yeah. It is about whether or not they are going to show some signs that they are stabilizing right now. And, and for the most part, for some of the regional banks that we don't often talk about in terms of the Western-centric ones that are the, the kind of closely tied to Silicon Valley Bank, those ones seem to be okay for the time being, but we're going to get a lot more data points this week when you get the Comericas, the Zions, and others coming out to kind of give their numbers up. David, I just got to sneak this in real quickly. I mean, are, do you do, you know, kind of rating price target changes, you know, all of that sort of thing um, immediately following what we've heard from some of these players? Or do you think this is going to be a longer period of time where we need more information to kind of know what the rightful valuations are going to be? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think a couple points, um, you know, we, we do try and, you know, adjust our estimates and our, and our valuations right away. But to be clear, you know, usually I like to, you know, if I contemplate a rating change, kind of digest all the uh, all the information for the quarter and kind of stack rank the group. I'd also point out with J.P. Morgan's strong quarter and their NII guide, you know, part of that is they contemplate in their guide the Fed to cut later this year, which eases the cost of deposits later on. So it'll be interesting that that dynamic versus the Fed views. How wow. that play. Yeah, that's officially in, you know, baked in. And yet the Fed itself is insisting, oh, no, it's, we're not going there. That's fascinating. Thank you all. David Conrad, Hugh Sun and our Dom Chu. We really appreciate it. Now, despite all those downturn concerns, my next guest says the market is not overvalued and consumer discretionary stocks are his biggest holding. He says panic is driving the markets instead of the data themselves. Joining me now is Neil Hennessy. He's chief market strategist at Hennessy Funds. Neil, it's great to see you again. Give me your common sense point of view here. What do you think is going on? Well, I think everybody, Kelly, has to just take a step back. Like the last segment, you're talking about the banks. I mean, the financial uh, se uh, segment is very strong. You look at the financials, and that's just proved by what the feds did two weeks ago. In the light of, of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, they raised interest rates. They would not have raised it 25 basis points if they thought the financial system was in, in, in any shape that was going to get hurt. So, but there's a lot of a uh, lot of issues that are going on. A lot of things that are being said. But the bottom line is our financial system's in good shape. Our markets are in good shape. The consumers in good shape. There's tons of cash on the side. There's seven trillion dollars in cash on the S&P 500 balance sheets. There's over five trillion dollars in cash in money market funds. There's a, over a trillion dollars in cash in personal savings accounts. 
Where did all this money come from and where is it going to continue to come from? Most of it is all from everybody's being employed that wants to be employed. Companies are making money. Earnings are going to be down approximately 6% this year. So what, Kelly? There's <laughs> companies that are still cash flowing at huge numbers and putting money in the bank and looking at the same time the cost savings. So I'm not sure why everybody gets panicked, but it, you know, it's sort of like the pandemic's over, but it's still in the back of people's minds. And so they're jumping from one thing to another. When the reality of the situation, if you buy quality and you hang on to it, you're going to be fine through whatever crisis you think is happening out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, even just to quote Ed Hyman, there's a few different people out there, Neil, who are really good on, you know, looking through some of the leading indicators and things. And they're like, guys, this crash could be harder than expected. The idea that we'd go, you know, soft landing, mild recession, nobody knows. It, it, the, the, we're going to tip over here. And I'm not saying that's not going to be a good opportunity to buy stocks, but I can absolutely understand why people are concerned, and I would hardly expect the Fed to be ahead of that. They're always behind. They overreact one way, they overreact another way. They're all focused on lagging data. They're never ahead of the ball. Well, I can see that. But, you know, if you look back a couple of years ago, everybody was, I guess, hoping that the Feds were going to keep interest rates at zero. And everybody knew at some point in time they were going to go up. That, you know, you look at Silicon Valley Bank, you look at Signature, those were just mismanaged. But same crisis that we had going back to 2008 and nine. If you look at it, Kelly, did anybody have a problem cashing a check? Anybody getting cash at a bank have a problem? Did your debit card not work? I mean, come on. So when everybody's focused on this banking issue, when it really isn't an issue. But if you focus in, and, and one thing I've always said, and Kelly, you know I've always said, if you buy high-quality companies, and most likely if they're boring, sort of like a coin-operated laundromat, because right. you've never seen a sign outside a coin-operated laundromat going out of business, those companies tend to perform over time, little by little by little, and, and, and they make the investor, the end user, a lot of money. Let me ask you this, Neil, because we're showing some of your top holdings we've talked about before, Academy Sports mm -hmm. and Outdoors, uh, you know, Dick's Sporting Goods, a couple of different types of financials you have almost no exposure to. Why? Well, we have two, we have two funds specifically uh, targeting the financials run by uh, Dave Ellison, the longest tenure person in the banking right, industry. Right, we just on had him street. on. Yeah. And so that's something different, completely different. Part of it also has to do with price of sales, and that's one of our leading indicators, Kelly, instead of price of earnings. I'd rather look at sales because that's a truer number than earnings where you can manipulate your earnings by write-offs or gains or whatever. Sales are sales. So financials are tough to uh, sort of evaluate from that point of view or just expensive? Well, it's, you know, like our mid the Hennessy Mid-Cap 30 fund is quantitative. So, you know, you're going to have to fall within that category of a low price of sales, higher earnings. And so when you look at the banking sister, Seth's, system, they didn't make it into that quantitative model. Mm -hmm. And so when I start to look at, you know, companies and what am I trying to do, and what I'm trying to do is not beat the indexes, I'm trying to make the shareholder money in the at the end of the day. Because at the end of the day, just by beating an index, uh, because you lost 10% of their money doesn't matter. Yeah, no, and you guys have done that uh, so, since the pandemic as, as, and before. Neil, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for your time today.
Thank you, Kelly. Neil Hennessy, Hennessy Funds. As we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. JP Morgan leading the way as we move off the very session lows. We're down less than 200 points right now, but only about seven names are in the green today. The biggest drag is Boeing, down nearly 6% after warning that an issue with parts could cause delays for 737 MAX deliveries. We've got the latest on that and more when the exchange returns in just a moment. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of Boeing down almost 6% on fresh news of delays for the 737 MAX, while shares of supplier Spirit Aerosystems are down 20% today. Phil Abo is here with the latest details, and Phil, investors seem super frustrated by this. Frustrated because they don't know how much of an impact this will have on Boeing's cash flow and, by extension, its earnings in the second quarter and really the rest of this year, Kelly. That's the primary issue for investors. And related to that is the question of how long will it take to fully identify and then figure out and fix how many 737 MAXs are impacted by this issue. While they are figuring this out, Boeing has said they will be pausing deliveries of some 737 MAXs. For example, the most popular MAX, the Dash 9 model, it's not impacted here. So the, the deliveries will continue in some fashion, but all models other than the Dash 9, they're going to have to inspect them. And, and that means those that are in production as well as in inventory, two fuselage parts provided by the supplier Spirit Aerosystems uh, will need to be identified and potentially replaced. And again, this is not a safety flight, a flight safety issue. I've had this question all day long. Well, if it's an issue with the, a part in the fuselage, is it still safe to fly? Yes, the FAA says the ones that are in service can continue to be in service, but it will impact deliveries potentially. And when you look at the 737 MAX, remember that Boeing has been increasing production and increasing deliveries. The estimate right now, according to FactSet, for full-year deliveries this year, 445, but I've already heard from a couple of analysts who are saying, look, we're going to have to bring down our estimate depending on how long it takes for them to identify this. And this is video of Spirit Aerosystems located in Wichita, Kansas. They are the ones who have said there is a particular issue with two parts at the aft, part, aft part of the fuselage where it connects with the, uh, the tail fin. And what you have is a situation where they're going to have to inspect these planes and potentially fix them if they find the planes have the parts that are in question. Spirit Aerosystems, by the way, will be reporting its Q2 results on May 3rd. I haven't been able to find out when was the last time it was down 20% in a day, but this is one of the biggest losses, single-day losses that we've seen for Spirit in a long time. And then when you take a look at shares of Boeing, obviously under pressure because it may have fewer deliveries this year. Remember that its shareholder meeting is next Tuesday. 
Be interesting to see if they make any comment regarding this issue. And then on the 26th, they report their Q1 results. Kelly, back to you. All right, Phil, thank you very much. And again, that is weighing on the Dow today. Meantime, demand for planes and for travel in general seems to be very strong still. It's got names like Booking Holdings up 30% so far this year. Delta CEO Ed Bastian telling Squawk Box yesterday he expects a very strong spring and summer. But my next guest says don't get too carried away with your enthusiasm for Booking.com right now, although for a different reason. Joining me is Richard Clark of A.B. Bernstein. Richard, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you. You're pointing out, listen, this market share here maybe is facing some uh, competitive pressures. What are they? Yeah, so I suppose what we see within the booking numbers, which have been good and they have been very supportive of the stock, is they have benefited from some of the actions of their biggest rival, uh, Expedia. Expedia has switched off or de-invested in some of its smaller brands like Travelocity, eBookers, Orbitz. Um, it's re-platformed some of its more prominent brands like Hotels.com, which have affected performance. Um, it's decided to try and become more of a B2B focus on loyalty. Um, and we think those actions have helped booking, but are time limited. Eventually, Expedia will be back to the market. Uh, and there are some signs with its new loyalty program, maybe its investments in, 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 in AI that show that it's getting more confident again and coming, uh, coming more to the forefront. Sure. So you see basically Expedia is coming back in uh, in, a, in a big way, potentially. What about Google? Yeah, so Google, I mean, the, the aggregate position of Booking and Expedia, what we see is that they are losing share. Um, so Booking is gaining, but it's gaining from Expedia's losses. And, and the aggregate is that they're losing share. And one of the biggest drivers of that is Google. Google has continued to iterate how it deals with travel-based searches. It isn't a direct competitor, but it is sending more traffic to the hotel's own websites through its map-based and uh, reordered searches. And so that's certainly having an impact on the aggregate position of the two OTAs. And I really like your point here. So a lot of people, as they've been running recession uh, probabilities, have been looking back to the playbook from the financial crisis to say, where were some areas that we could kind of hide it or ride it out? And Booking was one of those areas, you know, relatively speaking. Why don't you think that's going to be the case this time around? Yeah, I suppose there's two factors for that. And we're not, our thesis is not that travel's about to fall off a cliff. Every year, I think, for the last three years, we've been hearing travel's going to fall off a cliff in September. And, and people are now saying it for this year. We don't really believe that. But if it does, where would be the places to hide? And we don't think OTAs are necessarily the right place. In 2009, the vast majority of hotels were not on the OTAs and, and came on to them in that period to find the incremental customer. Now there is no supply-led growth. They were also the best price discovery tools for consumers. They where you got the best deals. And we would argue there are other platforms like Google, like Hopper, that potentially can provide better prices to the consumer um, in the next uh, uh, the next potential downturn. Real quickly, Richard, before I let you go, and again, it's not often you see a name like this taken to underperform. That's why it's so provocative and we like it, um, you know, in terms of getting us thinking. Stack it up across the rest of your coverage base. Like you said, you don't expect, a, you know, maybe a macro slowing in travel, but how would you explain your thoughts on, on the stocks uh, in the coverage space more broadly? Yeah, I, I suppose I'm an interesting analyst in this respect, that I'm, I'm not actually an internet analyst, I'm a lodging analyst. So I cover Hilton, Marriott, those companies. And, and in that respect, the fundamentals of uh, a booking are pretty much par for the course of selling travel, high margins, high cash generation. You can get that elsewhere in the travel distribution market. It's a great business to be in. And I guess I just see with booking more competitive pressures, um, maybe slightly less defensibility uh, in terms of their customer base than we see elsewhere, maybe in some of the C-Corps um, or even Airbnb. All right. And they were showing Airbnb shares also up 32% year to date. Richard, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Richard Clark of Bernstein. Now, what if I told you that Power Bar, Power Bar was a top pick on the street today. Stiefel naming its parent company Bell Ring Brands as a top pick, with the shares already up 33% so far this year. And Bell Ring also owns those popular premier protein drinks and protein powders. Meantime, tobacco stock Philip Morris, also a Stiefel top pick, lowered today, but on pace to close out a third straight positive week. We're back in a moment here on The Exchange. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Just off session lows, but again, very different tone than what we initially saw this morning. Dow low was down 289. We're down 229 right now with Boeing. UNH, by the way, also putting some pressure on. S&P's down six-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq is down nearly 1% today and almost down about 1% for the week. Coming up, a tipping point for home buyers: The mortgage rate. They refuse to go over what this line in the sand could mean as the spring housing market heats up. The Exchange is back in a moment. Good day, everyone. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Air National Guardsman arrested in connection with the leak of classified documents appeared in court today and learned what charges he will face. A federal judge told 21-year-old Jack Teixeira that he's being charged with possessing classified documents pertaining to national security and possessing national defense materials. The charges carry a maximum of 10 years behind bars. Teixeira's next court appearance is set for Wednesday. Members of Congress are reacting to the document leak and arrest, and some are defending the suspected leaker. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted support for Teixeira and claimed that the Biden administration was, quote, the real enemy. In response, former Representative Liz Cheney said Greene should lose her security clearance and that she, quote, cannot be trusted. And the maker of Mifepristone, the pill used for medical abortions, uh, is joining with the Justice Department now to ask the Supreme Court to block a ruling that curbs access to the medication. Danko Laboratories said if the decision to revoke approval of the drug goes into effect, it would be unable to conduct its business and would be, quote, irreparably harmed. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you, and I'll see you soon. Meantime, we have a ton of divergent data to dive into today and really from the entire week. CPI, PPI both easing. Retail sales missed, but if you look at the three-month annualized pace, they're still quite high. Headline consumer sentiment beat this morning, but those one-year inflation expectations shot higher, which helped push up rate hike expectations. And industrial production also climbed, but that was thanks to utility usage rather than manufacturing. So the data in two different camps, or maybe 10, and the Fed seems to be as well. Senior economics reporter Steve Leesman is here to explain. Steve? Can I just say after a week like this, Kelly, thank God it's Friday. I mean, what a week. Um, Where we ended up was dovish comments from a new Fed president this morning. Somewhat better inflation data during the week. Softer retail sales this morning. It prompted bond markets to do the opposite of what you'd expect. They actually are pricing in 
more Fed tightening at this hour. Take a look. Fed funds futures markets now nearly fully pricing in a quarter point rate hike coming in May. That would bring the funds rate to 513. So you can see for May, they're just about most of the way there, 507, 508. And expectations for that year end that we look at for the January 24 contract, they're up from five, sorry, from 432 to above 450 now. So less in the way of cuts built in. Most of the move, move curiously came right after the retail sales numbers showed a bigger drop than expected. Though, as Kelly just said, the March decline was revised up to less of a drop and that quarter was still strong because of the big January spending number. And it came while new Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby in his first interview since becoming that, uh, taking that title, uh, was suggesting the Fed should be cautious about future hikes. Let's just be mindful that we've raised a lot. It takes time for that to work its way through the system. And you, with this retail sales number, you may be seeing a, a little bit of that lag. And if you add financial stress on top of that, let's not be too aggressive. So potentially offsetting Goolsby's comments were hawkish remarks from Fed Governor Chris Waller at about the same time. Waller saying, quote, because financial conditions have not significantly tightened, the labor market continues to be strong and quite tight, and inflation is far above target, so monetary policy needs to be tightened further. Waller said tightening in credit conditions could offset the need for some tightening by the Fed, but he added that tightening would have to be, quote, significant, and that he would be looking for, quote, abrupt adjustments, not more than what's already been in, in the works. So the data, I'd say it leaned a bit dovish this week, but Waller and most other Fed speakers outside of Goolsby leaned hawkish, and that's what ultimately, I think, swayed the market to where we are right now, Kelly. Yeah, well said, Steve. Stay with us. Let's bring in Peter Bookvar of Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. No one else brings it all together, Peter. The macro, the bank's data, and, and let me point out maybe the most stubborn and frustrating data point of the year. Gasoline prices are up almost 50 cents a gallon, and maybe that's why we saw inflation expectations jump. And it'd be pretty uncomfortable if right as the Fed needs to sort of take its foot off the brakes, um, energy prices are kind of structurally stubbornly high, let's call them. I, I think that's actually going to be a major swing factor as the year progresses. One of the things that came out today was the uh, Baker Hughes oil rig count, lowest level since last June. Really? So you have OPEC cutting production. We have U.S. shale that's not stepping up. And you could get oil prices that rise as the year progresses, particularly if the Fed does eventually stop raising rates. That leads to further weakness in the dollar, and that will really complicate their job. I mean, just in April alone, the first two weeks, oil's up double digits. Wow. So whatever moderation that we might have seen on the energy side in March and CPI, PPI, even in import prices, well, that's going to reverse itself when we see the April data next month. And we learned in 2008, you can have oil prices rising even during a recession. I mean, it was the early part of 08. They climbed to, what was it, 150 or so, and that was the yep. recession was already four, four, five, six months in at that point. That would be a, a difficult stagflationary situation, and I'm not sure how the Fed would respond because they know that they wouldn't necessarily be able to directly cap energy prices, but it would still filter through in an inflationary way throughout the rest of the economy. And I don't want to take us too far down a hypothetical, so maybe let's dial it back to what you think is most significant about today. Is it this change in expectations for a hike now? Going into today, we were still about 65 percent, call it. So Waller's comments sort of pushes that further, but we still have a couple weeks left of data. Uh, I don't think that Goolsby's opinion is going to be solely to him, because a lot of the things that Waller said was classic rearview mirror thinking. 
Uh, the labor market's strong. Yeah, well, it's strong, but it's not as strong. What about jobless claims? The, the jobless claims, exactly. Uh, talking about very sticky inflation, but once rent starts to kick in, that's going to disappear. So I, I, I think he, he is he's really looking in the past, not in the future, and coming from someone who's very focused on inflation and has been, uh, I, I think he's making a classic central bank mistake. Steve, I'll give you the final word here. And we have made it through now a raft of the data we were expecting for the month. And it's interesting to see, although there's a little bit more to come, like Peter said, we're, we're largely in another hike camp. Yeah, it's hard for me to see. And, and if I don't, if you don't mind, maybe give Peter the final, final word in that I don't really see what else is going to change the uh, Fed's opinion here. Um, I think the market was maybe uh, kind of uh, in this uh, holding back and making a final call on this. And now I think all the data is in. I think unless there's data that show the banks pulling back much more or maybe going to the window much more than they thought or than is currently the case, that I think the writing's on the wall. There's not very much else that's going to be out there to sway the Fed. Maybe some huge rise in jobless claims could give them pause. Sure. I don't think that there, there's much else here. And the way it broke, uh, Kelly, was, you know, inflation was down. But, but the idea that what really fell in inflation this week was the headline number. And what you were just talking about, likely to reverse itself in April, I think that's going to weigh on the Fed, which, again, I think is a forward-looking indicator, not a backward one. And Steve makes a good point, Peter, that maybe the jobless claims really become the most If this is just a head fake and they go back down, fine. And if not, that basically means we're with, you know, set the clock for recession. Or as Michael Kantrowitz would say, once claims have bottomed, stock prices have also topped. So there's a lot at stake here for that series. For sure, and it's the highest frequency data we're going to get every week. And to Steve's point, maybe there's not enough data to swing them and pull them back, but jobless claims could be, and maybe corporate earnings. I mean, we're going to hear a lot from corporate America in the next couple weeks and what they have to say about the landscape. We had even the Wells Fargo CFO talked about uh, moderation in spending they saw. We had Fastenal saying that sales uh, fell off in March because March 9th was a big change. We have two economies this year pre-March 9th and post-March 9th. Because of the SNAP benefits? And and because of SVB. Oh, because of SVB. SVB, right. So I want to hear what companies have to say about their business post-March 9th and into the couple weeks of April rather than up until March 9th. All right. Got to go. Steve, I love you. Ten seconds. (laughs) That's what really separates members of the Fed is how concerned they are about what happened March 9th with Gould's being more concerned, some other folks saying, hey, we got it solved. We have the big programs out there. Yeah, exactly. Eight, nine, ten. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what makes him so good at his day job and his night job. Steve, thank you, Steve Leisman. There is a line in the sand for home buyers this year, and it has to do with, no surprise, mortgage rates. What, they, what number do they refuse to go over? Diana Olick is here to explain. Diana? Well, Kelly, for most buyers, the mortgage rate determines what they can afford, right? Because you buy the house not based on the price, but on the monthly payment, and the monthly payment is all about the rate. But a new study by Johns Burns Research found a majority, 71% of buyers, said the highest rate they would accept is 5.5%. That apparently is the tipping point. And it didn't matter the age of the buyer either, as in those older consumers who may have had a higher mortgage rate many years ago. In addition, 62% of consumers said normal mortgage rates are below 5.5%. Now, just so you know, the current rate is about 6.4%. And of course, we've been talking about these higher rates since they shot up early last summer. But historically, the 30-year fixed rate in the United States 
averaged 7.75% from 1971 all the way to 2023, reaching an all-time high of over 18% in 1981 and a record low of 2.65% in January of 2021, the height of the pandemic. Now, it's only been since the Great Recession and quantitative easing that rates went below 5% and then went historically low in that 2 and 3% range. Now, those ultra-low rates, of course, they were the thing that lit the fire under home prices. So it's no surprise 63% of current homeowners think homes are overpriced, as do 83% of renters. I Kelly, know you got all the numbers? I do. I well, believe everybody follow. I mean, who, is there anything more followed than the housing market and mortgage rates? But Peter, I was just going to say 5.5% might feel better, might unlock a new wave of demand. But the market is resilient even with rates where they are right now. To me, it seems surprisingly resilient. From a price, pricing perspective, absolutely. I mean, I'm still he hearing about bidding wars. Right, same. That, that's because of the, just still the dearth of inventory. I mean, to Diana's, Diana's point, 90% of the mortgage out, mortgages outstanding have are below 5%. Mm. I think about 70% are below 4 wow. So you have a lot of these people that are trapped in their houses, whether they want to or not, because they just don't want to give that up. Now, I think as we get through the, the spring selling season, which is the hot season, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out on the price side. But no doubt the lack of inventory is keeping things elevated, which would then potentially reduce the pace of transactions and, even uh, and further. Andy has made this point as well, Diana, but you know, if we see mortgage rates fall below, as Peter said, 4%, 5% even, I mean, that could suddenly see more inventory, lower prices. It could really spur uh, some moving activity. Absolutely. And inventory is the key right now. That's the problem. New listings are down phenomenally from a year ago. There's just nothing on the market. And if it is on the market, it's priced incorrectly, and that's why it's sitting. But I would also note that about a quarter of all home purchases right now are all cash, yeah. so no mortgage rate involved. And that is really historically high for the market. Usually it's well below 20%. We're also told that investors are moving out of the market right now because prices are so high, and yet that all cash number hasn't pulled back very much yet. And that means that people have so much capital that they're sitting on, maybe it's in a home they already have or somewhere else, but they're putting it in because they don't want a mortgage. Absolutely. Diana, thanks. Peter, thank you as well. Peter Bookvar and our Diana Olick. Still ahead, big EV makers and solar companies boosted by the Inflation Reduction Act. But what about the mom and pop shops also involved in the energy transition? We'll tell you how small business could benefit from the IRA next. Meanwhile, check out shares of ResMed. This is the sleep apnea device maker. Uh, they're down. They've been volatile today, even though Mizuho is bullish on the name, initiating them with an outperform, calling them the undisputed king of sleep. One to keep an eye on. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. Small businesses have been feeling like we're in recession for over a year now, according to the NFIB survey. But for some, their business has gotten a much needed boost lately from the government's Inflation Reduction Act. Let's get to Kate Rogers with that story. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, while it may be too soon to tell how Main Street is benefiting from some of the provisions in the IRA, the bulk of the boost we're hearing about so far is in the energy space. Companies like SolarGain, a small business that installs solar systems for other small businesses and residential spaces, are seeing a big uptick in business as owners look to take advantage of a 30 percent tax credit for switching over to solar. We're expecting to at least double or triple our business. and. The 10-year growth horizon is um, kind of the sky is the limit. The the increase projections for solar are somewhere running in 20% a year, which is a huge growth trajectory, and we want to be a big part of that. 
Others like Bill Belknap, who owns construction company Eonergy, are benefiting so far from a lower inflation rate and hope to see continued price stability moving ahead. It's also affected my decision making. So if uh, if I have uh, unpredictability of, of being able to perform on a contract and make a profit, I, I am running a business then uh, that allows me to uh, be more uh, effective in my pricing structure, uh, which can benefit the customer and also uh, increase the predictability of the outcomes for, for, my, for my, my, uh, my company. He also plans to take advantage of a separate tax credit in the IRA for buying a clean vehicle for his business. So once again, Kelly, the energy portion really seems to be the key benefit so far for these small business owners. Back over to you. And any signs otherwise, Kate, beyond those who would benefit from the IRA directly that they see things turning a corner for the better or or not? I mean, do they remain firmly in the camp of being worried about the horizon? You know, I think if inflation continues to come down and the supply chain woes that we've been talking about, aside from the inflation issues and the labor issues, continue to stabilize, small business owners will start to feel better. But as you and I have been discussing and as we're talking about as a network, another big concern here is what the credit market kind of looks like moving ahead. Yeah. If there's stability around access to capital, the ability to get a loan and what that looks like. I know you were just talking about in your segment before I came on what that looks like moving ahead. So I think there's a lot of focus there. But if inflation continues to cool, that, of course, is a benefit for small business owners. Yes, absolutely. Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rogers reporting. Still ahead, United Health beating estimates, hiking guidance today, but its shares are falling, and that's not helped for the Dow. It's shaved about 100 points off it, in fact. We'll talk about what's driving the stock lower and why it might not be as bad as investors think next. And a quick programming note, the CEO of PNC, Bill Demchek, will join Squawk on the Street next Wednesday morning. Very much looking forward to it, as their shares have also been a bellwether today. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Want to get one more thing before we go, and that's despite reporting better-than-expected earnings and boosting full-year guidance, shares of United Health are lower today after that initial pre-market pop. Bertha Coombs is here to kind of dig into this, Bertha. What do you think caused this turnaround? Well, it's a little bit of worry about a change coming from CMS. United Health Group's the first of the big Medicare players to report since the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid issued new rules for Medicare Advantage plans that start next year. United Health reporting earnings of 626 a share on nearly $92 billion in revenues. That's both up about 15% from a year ago. On the insurance side, United Healthcare saw 13% revenue growth. On the services side, Optum is growing nearly twice as fast. Overall revenues topping $54 billion, up 25% from a year ago. Optum Health, which includes their physician practices and clinics, was up more than 37%. Optum Insight, that includes the Change Healthcare, the analytics, that's acquisition, up 40% year over year, while the OptumRx pharmacy was up about 14.5%. But last week, CMS issued new rules to try to tamp down on so-called upcoding in Medicare Advantage plans, which essentially means, you know, offering higher reimbursement for managing sicker patients. Now, some of the add-on condition codes are being phased out over the next three years. United CEO Andrew Witte says he thinks that United will be able to adjust without impacting growth or profits. Given our established capabilities and our ability to focus on cost management, as well as the broad portfolio of value-based services, clinics, in-house activities provided by Optum, we feel super confident in our ability to manage the evolving funding landscape. 
Now, all of the Medicare players are preparing their 2024 rates now, so they have to really jigger. Not all of them, Kelly, have the same scale in terms of those services that United Health does, so they may not be able to manage it quite as well. And remember, like CVS's Aetna, they're already under pressure to offer more services mm. next year to be more competitive. UNH has gone from the 14th biggest S&P company in 2020 to the sixth as of the end of last year. I mean, it is a mess. I don't even like talking about it because every time I see these names, I feel, you know, when we're all dealing with insurance and it's, yeah. you, it's the last thing you ever the last phone call you want to make just showing it on the screen is like giving me trauma uh, let's bring in john ransom of raymond james now he was on power lunch just a few days ago to preview these results after upgrading unh to strong buy john i was joking i was going to jinx the results and they didn't miss but why do you think the stock's struggling today yeah kelly if you pull up a chart um of the past say three months the stock went up when cms and bertha was talking about it but when cms decided to phase in these rules uh, over three years versus one year. Um, and what United had been telling the street was, hey, if it's one year, it is a material hit to our Optum Health, but we can still get to the 13 to 16% growth. And that, that was kind of the important message. So phasing it in over three years um, is even better. And, and just to explain one quick thing, United and Humana are really the only vertically integrated MA plans, meaning that they have large physician groups and so what they do is they'll take, say, 14000 from Medicare. They'll earn their 15% margin in the insurance company. And luckily, if they've got a patient in their physician network, then they send that, say, $12,000 to their physician network. And if that doctor can provide the all-in care for the patient for, say, $10,000, then they're making $4,000 of gross profit versus, mm. say, 2000 if they're just caring for that patient and the insurance company. So United and Humana are way down the road with this, you know, kind of vertically integrated double dip strategy. That's why CVS spent, you know, $10 billion buying Oak Health because they're, they're trying to play catch up. So that's really the, the, the big news here is the, the big plans, Humana and United are lengthening their share and market share. And they have this vertically integrated strategy where they can double, basically double the gross profit. Is there, John, a read through into kind of the cost or price of healthcare services for the rest of us from these results? Um. That's a good question. It's a complicated quarter because you had a prior period reserve, which means you over-accrued last year. That reduces the medical cost ratio. You had an Omicron comparison, um, and then you had – so all-in medical costs were up about 40 basis points if you ignore the uh, prior period develop, development. So, yeah, I, I think even with a lot of Omicron spending, medical costs were up this quarter. And I don't know if it's an inflation thing as much as it is a utilization thing. We are seeing patients get back to the uh, – get particularly scans, you know, they're getting good news, they're getting x-rays and MRIs and mammograms. And then we also think there was a little jump in surgeries this quarter. Surgeries were really soft in the fourth quarter. So we think there was a bit of a catch-up trade in surgeries this quarter. Yeah. So open question, see what happens in the second quarter. But all our surveys were coming in a little bit hot on medical costs this quarter. All right. Still think the stock is a 630 strong buy. John, thanks for joining us post results. It's good to check in with you. Bertha, thanks as well. Uh, that was John Ransom joining us from Raymond James. That's it for us on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package list and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx. 